Hello, my friends. This is Pastor Christopher Alam in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I trust you and your household are doing well. And uh, we are talking about the call of God, which is the, the main subject. And uh, yesterday we talked about the ministry of the teacher. And I will, uh, I'm sorry, the ministry of the pastor. And that's what I'm going to continue with today, talking about the ministry of the pastor, different aspects of the ministry of the pastor, um, things that the Bible tells that a pastor has to do. And so we are, we are talking about some of those sub, uh, some of those elements. And yesterday I talked to you about uh, one one of the things that the pastor has to do. And these are words that are actually found in the New Testament, where pastors are. Uh, are, are told to do these things. And one of these things is to warn, to warn people. In Acts 20, 31, it says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn everyone day and night with tears. So Paul said that he, he uh, you know, he, he warned people and, and, and he did that. He had to do that, especially because uh, the churches that he planted, they were relatively new and they were, I mean, you know, they were Judaizers who were telling people and they were, these were actually uh, uh, Pharisees who had believed in Jesus and they were in the church and they wanted people to follow the law of Moses and to be circumcised. Then you had the Gnostics, they came with their stuff and there were other groups. There was, oh, you know, especially in the church in Corinth, there was... Uh, they had the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but they had adultery and fornication. I mean, it was confusion. And so Paul, uh, he, he warned them. He warned. And so one of the things that the pastor has to do is warn people against wrong practices, against things that are wrong. Because if he doesn't, then uh, people would think he's condoning it. People, uh, you know... People easily think, well, the pastor isn't saying anything about this, so I guess he's okay with it. And uh, especially these days, there are certain kinds of sexual perversions that are widespread. And many pastors, they just choose to be quiet and not say anything because they think if they say anything, they would be uh, called by others as being this kind of phobic or that kind of phobic. So they decide we are not going to say anything. We are going to be quiet and not warn people about these practices, although the Bible teaches against them. And sometimes people don't like to warn people because they don't want to be unpopular. They don't want people turning against them. They don't want the media at their door. But these are risks we have to take if we want the well-being of the people who God has put in our care we have to, we have to speak up and tell people what is right and wrong and warn them. Because if we do not warn them and they fall into these wrong practices, you know, people can even end up losing their portion in the book of life. The consequences of not warning people are very, very severe. And it is not a, a pleasant thing that anybody wants to do is to warn people against wrong things but it has to be done. Now, the next thing that a pastor has to done is to admonish, is to admonish. And that is another thing that we consider unpleasant. Now to admonish means to warn and to notify of a fault. It's very specific. It means, it me, it means to reprove gently or kindly, but seriously to caution against wrong practices. So when there are wrong practices going on, 
and uh, we begin to speak up against them. And especially in our day and age, if you begin to speak out against sins, against wrong practice, uh, people will either say that you're legalistic or people will say uh, you don't have love because, uh, you know, a lot of people these days, have you noticed? I don't know if you have noticed it, but I have noticed it, that there isn't such a great emphasis on personal Bible reading. There isn't. Uh, people uh, watch uh, Christian TV and they listen to sermons and they listen to podcasts and they like to go to conferences and they don't have time. They're too busy to read their Bibles, too busy for prayer. So uh, I know a lot of people, they are too busy for Bible and the Bible too busy for prayer, but they believe in Jesus. They are really sincere in what they believe. I believe they're sincere, but you can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And so uh, their idea of, of serving God is basically going to church on Sunday. And uh, you know, when I, when I was younger, I, I, mean, I mean, it was like we carried our Bibles to church. Nobody told us we had to, but it was a practice. And you know, sometimes there are certain habits that are actually good habits. Good spiritual habits are actually good things. They're not legalistic, but they're good for you. And one of the good habits that we had, we always took our Bibles to church. So when the pastor quoted a scripture, we opened our Bible and we immediately found the scripture and read it. We knew where the scriptures were. Now these days, most people don't carry their Bibles to church. Why? Because if the pastor does quote a scripture, it comes on the screen. So people read it on the screen. So people think, why should I carry a Bible? Why should I bother to carry a Bible? Because they throw the scriptures up on the screen anyway. Now, I understand the motive behind it. They do this because there's people uh, who, you know, who are new believers who, who don't know much. And so you want to facilitate for them. But <coughs> years of this has created a culture of people not taking their Bibles to church. Now, if people don't take their Bibles to church, I seriously doubt whether they even read them at home because church is the place to carry your Bible. You know, it's like going to a beach, but without your swimming trunks with you. You just don't do that in the same way. You go to, it's also like going hunting and forgetting your gun. You just don't do that. There are some things you just do. And going to church is one of those things and going to church with your Bible is, you know, that's what it's all about. So what happens is that, uh, so there's a culture of people not really reading their Bible and that being combined with very short sermons, 20 minute sermons, uh, and it's mostly pep talks and, uh, and um, no or very little encouraging people to study their Bibles. Now, when I was a young Christian, I mean, there was a strong emphasis on Bible reading. And as friends, we used to meet together in homes and we had Bible studies. We studied the Bible, not books but we studied the Bible. So what happens is that when people uh, don't read the Bibles, they don't know. So most of these people, uh, they just know two things from the Bible, which they have heard many times. Firstly, that uh, it is, uh, we should just love people and we should not judge people and, and that God is good and loving. So everything is viewed through the prism of, uh, of through that prism that we should not judge anyone and God loves everybody. So if you say something is wrong, suddenly you're being judgmental against those people who practice those things. 
or you're being harsh, you're being unloving. So we live in this atmosphere. And so many pastors, they don't speak up. They teach on faith, they'll teach on healing, they'll teach on other things, but they won't talk about right and wrong living because they are just afraid. Now, I have pastor friends who are very straight to do that, but I also know many who don't speak out about those things. So because of that, People who actually live in sin feel very comfortable coming to their churches because they're never challenged to change. And, uh, and if, they, if these pastors ever woke up one day and spoke up, you know what would happen? They would, their church would lose a lot of members because these people, uh, you know, I mean, it's never said openly, the pastor will never say we tolerate sin, but by his actions, it appears to the people that he does, that he's loving, he's kind, he doesn't want to judge anyone. So God accepts me and loves me as I am, so I can live in this sin and I can be in the church and I love this church for that reason. So what, what's happening is that it, it, you know, it perverts people's understanding of the Christian faith, their understanding of the Bible, their understanding of the character and the nature of God. And so uh, the Bible tells us one of the things the pastor has to do is to admonish, admonish. And I have to do that. And, you know, I have people working under me, I have pastors. And when I see them living in sin, I have to admonish them. That means I have to warn them. I have to notify. I have to point out their sin to them. And, and but I do it seriously, but I have to do it with kindness out of concern for their soul. Because if a person... Now, the Bible says there are certain sins. If people live in those sins, the Bible clearly says that they shall not see the kingdom of God. So these things have serious, serious consequences. We cannot just shrug them off. So we have to caution people against wrong practices, against things that are wrong that the Bible warns against. So that's called admonishing. It means to warn or to notify people of a fault, to correct them gently, but kindly, but seriously, being very serious about these things and to caution people against wrong practices. Okay, so Second uh, Thessalonians 3.15 says about, uh, about this, about admonish. It says, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. That means if we see a brother or a sister living in sin, practicing things, things that are wrong, that are blatantly wrong. Uh, we, we have to, uh, you know, we have to admonish him as a brother and not look at him as an enemy. I remember years ago, many years ago in Sweden, there was a young guy uh, uh, who had come to the Lord and, and, uh, and, and he was, I mean, he was living together with, the girl, with his girlfriend. So I told him very gently, I said, listen, brother, you can't live like this because uh, you know, this is what the Bible teaches and uh, your lifestyle is wrong. So you cannot live with your girlfriend anymore. So what he did, he moved out of her place and he had his, uh, he found his own place. But then I would meet with him. I think if not every day, every other day, I really believed in him and took time with him to, to help him uh, through his personal issues. And because he had no Christian background, he didn't understand a thing of what the Bible taught. So I had to teach him and help him and pastor this young man. So I was doing that, teaching him, helping him. And then I told him, I said, listen, brother, whatever it is, I want you to level with me, be honest with me, because only if you're honest with me, can I walk with you and I can, I can help you. Never pretend, never lie to me. So he would come to me and say, oh, brother, I have sinned. What? He said, I had sex with my girlfriend. I said, okay, okay. I said, I know it's wrong. 
And uh, I said, let's do this. Why don't we ask the Lord for forgiveness? So we prayed together and we asked the Lord for forgiveness. I said, okay, fine. I know you're sincere. Let's move on. And, and, and he would come back to it late, like every week, this was his problem. And so, um, so you know, I, I went before the Lord and the Lord said, look, if, if he was in the Lord for 10 years, you know, if he was a Christian for 10 years and he was doing this every week, that would be a different level of seriousness uh, of gravity in his sin when, than when he is a new believer. And the Lord said, the sin is still the same. Fornication is still fornication, but there's a different. He's a novice, he's a spiritual baby. And then you have somebody who, you know, who, who has been a Christian many years. So, you know, God said, and the Lord said, don't look at what a person does, but look at the direction of his life. And also it is your job to tell them what the Bible teaches and make sure that they grow out of things. So finally, I, I ended up uh, going to her and witnessing to her and she gave her life to Jesus and I told them, do you love each other? Yes. I said, well, then you should get married because you can't live like this. And they got married and that was many years ago. And now they've grown up children. They're happy. They're doing well together. So, so it's, it's that we, we have to, we have to warn people and, and, and not treat them like an enemy, but we have to love people and do our best to restore them and help them. Amen. So uh, this, we don't speak to people as if they are our enemy, but we speak to them as people who are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Doesn't matter what they do, heavy, if they're into heavy sin. And I remember once uh, a, a, a young man came to me uh, for prayer. This was in a church. Uh, I was in Europe and he had just come out of uh, prison for molesting children. And he, he stood there and cried. He says, Pastor, I just gave my life to Jesus, but I came out of prison. I want to tell you what I was in prison for. I said, what is it? He said, I molested children. And you know, people do things like that in the natural. Honestly, I find such people most revolting. And I, I almost wanted to hit this guy. But the Lord said, if you, this is what the Lord said to me. He says, he says, Christopher, do you want to help people, really help people? I said, yes, Lord, I do. I said, then the first thing you should learn is that when people stand before you and they tell you of the deepest things in their life and the filthy things that they have done, you should learn not to let your face betray any shock or surprise, but just love them and have compassion for them. And I said, Lord, I want to help people. And the Lord said, this is what I want you to do. So I really composed myself. I said, uh, brother, what you have done is terrible. It's wrong. And he cried. He says, I know it is wrong, but you know, I have, uh, but now I'm saved. And, but I still have those thoughts that come to me. I said, let me pray for you. I began to pray for him and the power of God, <coughs> I'm sorry, came on him. He fell to the ground and he began to vomit blood and the and the demons came out of him and he was completely free. So what I'm saying is that, uh, that we, we, you know, we, we are strong with people. We are straightforward with people, but we do it with love and, uh, you know, with their best intention at heart. So that is admonishing that, and we don't look at them like we're against them, but we uh, admonish them and, and uh, you know, we warn them and we caution against sin, but we do it with love but with utmost seriousness. That's the way we have to deal with people. And uh, 
you know, um, in, uh, let's put the next thing that we as ministers of the gospel, especially pastors have to do is to exhort. That's one word we find in the New Testament. Paul tells people to exhort and exhort to exhort people. We heard this word exhortation, exhort to the word translated as exhort. It means a loud and enthusiastic urging. Using an exhortation anytime you really want to encourage someone to do something. That means that we, we see a person and we, we want him to do something that will be fruitful, that will be a blessing, and we want him to move in that direction. So sometimes people will come and say, Pastor, I feel the Lord wants me to do this, or I feel an urging to do this. So exhortation in that case would be a loud and enthusiastic cheering this person on and pushing him and encouraging him. He said, brother, just do this and it's going to be very fruitful. It's going to be blessed and I'm going to be with you. And that is, that's a fun thing to do, to exhort people. There's nothing negative in it. We are not correcting any, any, you know, we are not correcting anyone, but we are actually pushing them to do something good. Sometimes people just need that. They have the calling, they have the gifting, and they have all the good intentions. They even have the desire, but they need someone who will stand by the sidelines and cheer them on and tell them. And that is one of the jobs that we have to do as pastor to exhort people. And in Titus chapter one, verse nine and Titus chapter two, verse 15, it says holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So this is Paul writing to Titus. And this is interesting that you, um, that when you exhort people, uh, you hold fast to the word that you have been taught so that you can exhort with sound doctrine. So, you know, we talked a couple of days ago about the word and doctrine. Uh, sound doctrine is, is the set of beliefs, the things that we believe. This is who we are. This is what we believe. That's doctrine. But where do we get doctrine? Doctrine we get from the word. Uh, all doctrine is based on the word. So when we preach the word, uh, when we preach the word and then we take the word and then we lay the word out and say, this is our doctrine. Uh, and so our doctrine, for example, the apostles doctrine, the apostles preached the word and that was their doctrine. So our doctrine is what the word of God teaches and not things outside the Bible that we have experienced. Say, for example, uh, the Holy Trinity is that's part of our doctrine that God is Father, Son and the Holy Ghost, that the word of God is infallible, inerrant and it's for today. That is a part of our doctrine that Jesus bore our diseases, carried all our pains, uh, healing in the atonement and the fact that that healing is for everybody. That's part of our doctrine. And, uh, you know, <coughs> all these things, so on and so forth, the baptism, baptism with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and all these things. So our doctrines are never based on our experiences or what we think or what sounds best or what someone I respect once said, our doctrine is always based on the word. So what it says here is that we exhort people by sound doctrine, which is based on the word that we have heard. And then it says, these things speak, exhort 
and rebuke with all authority. It's interesting that the combination of the three, we speak the word of God, we exhort people, that means we encourage them loudly, enthusiastically to do that. And we also rebuke. Rebuke means to speak sharply to somebody and correct their mistakes or faults. So all these things grow hand in hand, speaking the word and exhorting people, cheering them on enthusiastically and loudly and telling them, come on, man, you go and do this and God is going to bless you because sometimes people need that. And sometimes people need rebuke. Uh, in that same situation, they need rebuke and they need to be told, listen, you have done well, but you don't do this. And, uh, and you have to speak to them sternly. And I'm glad that I had mentors who did all three to them. They spoke the word of God to me but, and they cheered me on, but they were also strong in rebuking me, correcting me. Uh, when I believed or thought or did things that were wrong, they did that. And I'm grateful to that, grateful to the Lord for them. So uh, consequently, uh, the conclusion must be that pastoral leadership in the church included te preaching, teaching, oversight, shepherding. This is the office of a pastor. A pastor has a multifaceted ministry. It doesn't one thing. It's a number of things. And we have seen some of those things that a pastor is expected to do biblically. And uh, preaching, teaching, oversight, preaching, uh, proclaiming, teaching, that's expository, expository teaching, oversight, and oversight is when you watch over people and you exhort them and rebuke them, correct them, warn them, warn them, all these things come under oversight. And shepherding, shepherding is being a shepherd to them, leading them in the right direction. This is the office of a pastor. So the scriptures are clear regarding the office and the functions of the pastor. The biblical pattern is very simple. So this, if you look at all the, what the scripture teaches about the office of a pastor, uh, this is what a pastor should be. Uh, the biblical pattern is simple, describing a spirit-filled man who gives oversight, who is shepherding, guidance, teaching, and warning, and doing all these things with a heart of love and compassion. Now, all these functions are evident in the first century church. Uh, firstly, purity. Purity. That means including church discipline, maintaining purity in the church, uh, being disciplined ourselves and disciplined with others. We have to be very, very sharp. We have to be very, very strong when it comes to discipline, that there's some things you do, some things you don't do. And there are some things uh, which, which fall into the category, all things are permissible, but all things are not expedient. So that means that, uh, that uh, some things, it's not a question of whether it is right or wrong, but does it carry a good testimony? How does it affect somebody else? You have to take that into consideration. So, you know, every, so things uh, can be okay. They, you, I mean, nobody can say that the Bible forbids this, but do you really do it? Because things, there's other issues that come into play about your walking in love with others and making sure nobody else stumbles because our lives are not our own, but we live for others. So it's very important. So purity, we have to, you know, discipline and purity when it comes to ourselves and when it comes to uh, the church. Primitivism. Primitivism is actually New Testament 
simplicity. We must come back to primitivism. That means new, the, the simplicity of the New Testament church. Because what happened is that uh, as the church grew and developed after a couple of centuries and, you know, three centuries later, uh, what happened, that's when the uh, Emperor Constantine, he became a Christian. And then we had the Holy Roman Empire. And then we had the Holy Catholic Church. And the Catholic Church began to introduce other things uh, into the church, which were like dogmas. Now, there's a difference between doctrines and dogmas. Doctrines are based on scriptures. Dogmas are based on church traditions, revelations of saints and stuff like that. So that's why uh, in the Catholic Church, for example, they have doctrines, but they also have dogmas and dogmas have no scriptural basis. But they believe that uh, they are inspired of the Holy Spirit because they are the tradition of the church inspired of the Holy Spirit. So although there's no scripture for them, they carry the same weight as things that are scriptural. And you can't talk them out of it. You can't argue with them. You can't discuss with them. Now, people may say, well, the Catholics have dogmas, but we have certain things. We don't call them dogmas, but uh, we have certain things that really have nothing to do with the scripture, but that are set in stone and uh, many things that are that way, especially when, when it comes to the structure of the church. Say, for example, one little thing is, like I said to you earlier, that a bishop, elder, and pastor are the same thing, but now it's different. You have got bishops, then you've got pastors, and you've got elders down there. That kind of hierarchical thing is not found in the scripture. So we have to have a New Testament simplicity. We have to go back to the New Testament, back to Christianity as it was practiced in the New Testament. And uh, the third thing, uh, that is evident in the first century church is voluntarism. That means there's no compulsion. You don't force anything on anyone. Uh, fourth thing was tolerance, that there was no persecution of people who disagreed with you. If, if you, you know, if you uh, preach something, preach doctrine and people say, I don't understand or I don't agree with this, you don't persecute those people <coughs> who disagree with you. You love them. And you speak the word to them so that they come around and they begin to understand where you're coming from. Then evangelistic zeal. That was another thing that was in the first century church. That means missionary activity. The church knew that the reason for its existence was the preaching of the gospel. And we must come back to that today. The preaching of the gospel to sinners is the very reason for the existence of the church. And so we have to come back to that evangelistic zeal and missionary activity instead of the church here's the church and here's the activities of the church of the program driven church and this is how a church must be done because in america and in europe we have certain uh, and and in africa also we see that the certain way you do church and then you've got missions and evangelism which is really the main thing that jesus died for which is the great commission which is should be the the driving motor of the church the reason the church exists missions and evangelism is a little activity consigned to the side. So some churches have a missions director, a young guy who, you know, who organizes things, but they, that, but missions and evangelism is a sideshow and a small percentage of our budget goes to that. But the main percentage goes to what we are doing. And this is wrong because first century church, it was all about evangelistic zeal, about reaching the lost, about taking the gospel to those who had never heard. Then the next thing, about the first century church, observance of biblical ordinances. That means baptism and the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper, baptism, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
Then the next thing in about the first century church is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, on the Holy Spirit, his presence, his power and his gifts. We need to bring that emphasis back again. A strong, 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 powerful emphasis on the Holy Spirit, on his power and on his gifts. And the last thing is dynamic, powerful ministry, powerful times of ministry involving both pastors and people. So we need powerful ministry. We need altar ministry, laying on of hands and, and really believing God for miracles. We need that. We need powerful, powerful, dynamic ministry instead of just talking. Nowadays, it's all about talking and podcasts. A lot of the big churches, the, the pastor just gets up and talks, but there's no really hands-on power of the Holy Spirit type of ministry. And pastors have to come down from the platform and lay hands on the sick and cast out devils and do these things, dynamic ministry. And then I want to finish by saying this. Ultimately, the effectiveness of a pastor's ministry depends upon the willingness of people to honor the office that a pastor stands in and to submit to his ministry. Unfortunately, we live in a society where Americans believe in a lot of independence and they believe in personal space. And I run into pastors who say this all the time. There's, there's marriages breaking up in their churches. And the main reason is that people are so proud. They, have, they value their what they call their privacy and their personal space. So when they have trouble in their families, they would never go to the pastor. They would do everything, try to fix it and all that and then finally if they do come to the pastor it comes at a stage when it is too late and the pastor does his best and both sides have got all these huge conflicts and they end up in divorce and many of these people believe me firstly i want you to know if your pastor is a man of god he sees what's going on in your life okay the only reason he doesn't say it because he's he doesn't want a backlash from you but you must send the signals out and say to your pastor this is what i advise my american european friends to do say to your pastor you are my pastor you are a man of god i'm in your church and you're my pastor and it is your job to speak into my life if you ever see anything wrong in my life and my family please tell me believe me if you just give your pastor that right that authority to do that, he will speak into your life. It will save you a lot of grief. If you let your pastor be a father figure in your life to speak into your life, he will speak because a pastor will only use that authority that is given to him by you as as his parishioner, as his member. So uh, the success of a pastor's ministry, it depends to a, a great extent upon upon how how we uh, recognize and we honor his ministry and honor and recognize his place in our lives and we allow him to speak to us and that is very important and I've always done that my pastor pastor Sam Smucker he has the right I told him pastor if you see anything wrong with my life with my family my kids me not living right or any practice any belief that you think is not in line with the scriptures tell me please tell me and you know what things like that can save your life save you a lot of grief. So uh, we must learn to put aside this thing about personal space and this pride and this my private life and just put those aside and be submitted to your pastor and say, Pastor, here I am. If there's anything in my life, everything is good right now. But if you ever see anything, tell me. And, and believe me, when he sees something, because pastors pray for their church members, he'll be praying for you and he will tell you. 
He will tell you and that will save you a lot of grief. But anyway, so tomorrow we are going to talk about the ministry of the teacher. That's the fifth one, the last one of the ministry gifts. So let's, let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we honor you, we glorify you. I thank you. I thank you for your holy word that's able to impart life and faith into our hearts. I thank you for all the pastors out there and I thank you for those who are listening to me who aspire to be pastors because they have the calling of God on their lives to be pastors. So, Father, let your hand be upon each one of us. I thank you for your wisdom, for your guidance as we serve you. Let us bear much fruit for your glory in the name of Jesus. Well, brothers and sisters, I'll be talking to you again tomorrow. And tomorrow we're going to talk about the ministry of the teacher. God bless you.